All right. I'm going to try to bring you all back. One of the uh, one of the practices that Melissa and I have have been part of or have have been uh, engaged in in this process is some team teaching. And uh, if you've never experienced it before, it does require a little bit of coordination and some preparation. And we thought the most fitting way to wrap up my time here would be to do one last, I mean, last for now sermon together. Um, so. Thanks for joining us with this. And we might get emotional at times, and that's okay. So this week we are turning our attention to the third of our three vision couplets, Reimagine Church. And anytime you enter into a conversation about the church, you will inevitably find yourself wrestling with the question of terminology and definition, asking the question, what is the church? It's a good question, but it will likely lead you in quickly into the weeds of this conversation. The church is not a building. The church is a people. And in his book, uh, Everywhere You Look, author Tim Sorens suggests there's a better question, a far better question to be asked, and one that moves us to consider the purpose of the church. And he asks, what is the church for? What is the church for? So to be clear, when we speak of reimagination, what we're really talking about is the ongoing return to this purpose of the church. This looks a bit like renovation, where we pull back and remove the stuff that has gotten in the way and detracted from this very purpose. And then when we're down to the studs, rebuilding it in such a way that our hearts and minds and souls go, ah, that makes sense. That feels better now. Why didn't we do this earlier? And so this begs the question, what is the purpose of the church? What is the church for? And to this, we must go back to the birth of the church, to Pentecost, to the generous outpouring of the Spirit of Jesus upon a weary community, where they received with open hands, where diverse voices were elevated, and where they were rooted in that purpose of Jesus. There they began to co-create with God, God's Spirit, an alternative and reimagined community. And this community was the living embodiment of Jesus, his body on earth, his will on earth as it is in heaven. And so we say with all the air in our lungs that the purpose of the, Jesus mu the, purpose of the church must match the purpose of Jesus. To do this, we turn to the story of the pouring out of the Spirit on Jesus in Luke chapter 4. Looking back on Isaiah 61, this first sermon of Jesus was his thesis statement. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So what was Jesus for? He was for good news, for captives to be released that the world would see for the ending of oppression, for the yearning God desires and this idea of jubilee, which was all about the redistribution of power and resources. Walter Brueggemann, a favorite of both of us, suggests that the church exists to embrace this desire of God. That is what we are for. This quote here, about halfway through, it says, We are invited to notice what God's own spirit is doing in the world. Nothing less than deconstructing and obstructing our contemporary towers. 
of pride, greed, and control. God's spirit is actively and assertively countercultural. So today we want to explore three ideas, and these might sound familiar to you if you've been tracking with us for a while. These were all included in our, the vision that we affirm together as a community. So vision describes where we are going. It speaks to both our desired destination and the kind of community that we are seeking to become. So by reimagined church, we mean a desire to serve and connect beyond the pews, balanced rhythms for how we gather, rest, and serve, and critiquing and reshaping of power structures and systems. It's anything but the safe and reductionistic definition of church most of the world holds that is limited to Sunday services and holy hymns. In fact, because the church is the embodiment of Jesus, we should expect it to be a bit risky. In this book, Irvin Marion, you probably recognize this one. You gave it to me like a year and a half ago. I'm sorry. It's a great book, and I just came back to it recently. Church Cracked Open by Stephanie Spellers. She suggests that we should be warned that the more we learn about Jesus, the more you'll realize that a, what a risk taker he was. He constantly embraced failure, broke unjust rules, forgave those who trespassed against him, built alternative communities of love, and prioritized the witness and needs of the least empowered. So let's dive in. So as we, as we start with this question, how do we reimagine a church that embodies Jesus? One of the areas that so many of us have resonated with is the idea that the body of Christ doesn't belong predominantly within four walls. With all of us sitting in pews, listening to one person speak up at the front as we stare at the back of one another's heads. So can we gather in a space like this? and find meaning in the art and significance of stained glass and icons? Our experience would say yes. Can we find ways to point one another to Jesus and experience the presence of God in a space like this? Again, our experience would say yes, and since our theology would lead us to acknowledge the presence of God anywhere and everywhere we are gathered, it certainly does not disqualify the four walls of a sanctuary or a gym or a community space. However, the challenge is that somehow, whether intentional or not, rather than these pews and stained glass and large gathering spaces, sanctuaries and steeples being used as inspiration for worship, to point us to God, they have become synonymous with our very identity as the church. We begin to refer to the church as a building, a place we go, and over time, whether we realize it or not, we are shaped and formed by the very pews we sit in. We start to believe that this is the place where God's presence lives. These are the ways we will hear from and experience God. And this is the work that Christ has called us to, to build, to protect, to steward, and then to worship within these four walls of the church. And so we find ourselves shaping our theology and our practices around a definition of church that is growing further and further away from the vision that Christ has invited us into. And it often takes a shift or unsettling to lead us to reimagining again the vision of God's kingdom. So reimagining church requires us to reflect both as individuals and as a community around what aspects of our personal and collective definition of the church are rooted in the vision of God and God's spirit at work in the world and what is a reflection of our own experiences and preferences culturally and historically. 
In her book, Stephanie Spellers quotes Juan Oliver saying, liturgical do's and don'ts are relative, for they are determined by culture, not by God. And so they are, as the reformers knew so well, fallible and like the church herself, always in need of being reformed. If our reimagining of what the church is for is filtered through this question of what Jesus is for, we will undoubtedly be moved beyond the pews, outside of the walls that we have built. We will look for the ways that God is already at work in the world and join in that good and redemptive work of restoration and peacemaking. And perhaps our liturgies will begin to include prayers of both gratitude and lament as we pick up garbage along the trail and join in the work of caring for creation, reminding ourselves that this is what the church is for. And our practices of worship and service will include not only joining together in song within these walls, but also using our hands and gifts to prepare and share meals, to advocate for those facing oppression or marginalization, and to seek the beautiful dream of kinship that God has for all of the earth as it is in heaven. And what if those liturgies, practices, and rhythms have the power to form our imagination around what the church is for? Some of you have heard this story, and I share it with permission. Um, several months ago, Laura Bauma, some of you will know Laura and Chad. Um, they have two kids, and Rosie is their youngest, who's seven, and uh, and a couple months ago, they were talking about getting up on a Sunday morning and going to church. And Rosie asked the question, where are we going to church today? To that building, to Mel and Gary's house, or for a walk? And Laura has shared this story in the context of um, thinking about this very question. How are we formed around what is the church? And it is beautiful. At a young age, Rosie has been formed to see church as both what happens in this place on a Sunday morning, what happens at Mel and Gary's with their neighbors group on a Sunday, or what happens when we get outside with our church community and notice the beauty of God's creation. So this is not an either or, and we're certainly not advocating for getting rid of what happens here in this space together. But if our imagination for church is limited to only what happens here, then perhaps we've come to experience a malformed idea of church. I love this diagram in, uh, in this Tim Soren's book. He calls it the never-ending vortex. And so if we start at the top, we say, well, what is the church for? And then we, we so often answer, well, it's to gather on Sunday. And then that begs the question, well, what is Sunday for? Well, we answer to be the gathered church. And this cycles us back to the first question. Well, what is the church for? And it goes on and on in a never-ending vortex that actually diminishes our imagination for this beautiful thing called church. Now, I, uh, some of you may know I have, um, I have sleep apnea, pretty serious sleep apnea, um, for a couple of years now. And I have been told that I am a mouth breather by doctors and by my wife. Um, snore through my mouth. And one, most recently, my doctor said, why don't we try something different? Why don't we try? Because I was asking him about, like, is this whole, like, mouth tape thing, like, a hoax? The idea is you actually put tape, medical tape, proper, like, not just, like, masking tape, across your mouth to stop your body from breathing out your mouth and actually encourage you to breathe through your nose. 
And there's a whole bunch of different brands for this. One of them is like called Hostage Tape, and it's like black, and it's, their branding is really, it's a lot. Um, but the doctor said, in order to do this, though, because it's going to be weird, you should probably wear it in the day first. Wear it for, you know, half an hour while you're cooking dinner, and, uh, and so your body gets used to this. And so I, did a, I started doing that this week, and my kids, of course, as soon as I put this stuff on, my kids come up, and they're like, Daddy, what are you making? What are you doing? And then they look at me, and they're like, why do you have, like, tape on your mouth? Because I didn't explain this to any of them ahead of time. But the whole idea behind this is the retraining, the repatterning of my mind to learn a healthier way of breathing. Because my brain apparently does not know. My brain has a malformed idea of breathing at night. And this, this brings me back to this idea of, of Romans 12 too. This, this being transformed by the renewing of our mind. We've maybe heard a call to be transformed through a process of renewal. And this isn't just like thinking the right thoughts, but it's a retraining of our brain, a repatterning of how we think and dream and imagine. This idea that neurons that fire together, wire together. The more we do repeated activity, the more we build pathways in our brain. So transformation requires the, the repatterning of our minds and hearts and souls towards a, a balanced view as individuals and as a church of work and rest, of worship and service, of being and doing. We see this tension in the words of Jesus in John 13 and then John 15. In John 13, Jesus compels his, his followers to love others in such a way that it would be the defining characteristic of who they are, of their identity in Jesus. It seems like the most important work. It isn't easy. It takes work. And then just two chapters later, Jesus compels the same people to slow down, to rest, to abide in the presence of God. In that moment, he makes it seem like it's the most important good. Both being and doing are important. And it's striking this, this better, healthier balance of both that we are aspiring as we reimagine church together. And so this brings us to a really important part of what it means to be a reimagined church. How we hold and structure power. And if we can believe that our rhythms of gathering shape and form us, then it is plausible to believe that our systems of power and decision-making also form us. And these systems are ever in need of reshaping, re repenting, and repairing. And always with Jesus at the center of our work. And so, so many of our power structures and systems have been so deeply established in our own formation, it isn't always easy as, as just saying, well, we want to do things differently. It takes awareness, it takes intention, and it takes the continual work of critiquing and reshaping. And this often begins with asking questions. We've asked a lot of questions throughout this season. We've read books together, we've learned together, and especially during this recent transitional season, we've done a, a kind of deeper reckoning in search of being a church marked by goodness or tove. But it doesn't stop with asking questions. Rather, this critique invites us. No, it even beckons us to move toward reshaping how we hold power. We're reminded of the words of Jesus when he, he, when he healed and restored over and over again we see in the Gospels. He says, go and sin no more. When we center ourselves on Jesus, we heed these words as a kind of invitation to both be healed to be reshaped, to critique, 
and to break the cycle of harm. As Stephanie Spellers writes, this deeper reckoning is the precursor to movement, especially for institutions that have so fully aligned, allied with the ways of empire and control. Given what we know, given where we have been and where we see God's spirit leading, where will we stand? Where will we stand? If we're standing with Jesus, we will stand where he stood, where he still stands. We stand in opposition to the power systems of the empire, and we stand for and with those experiencing oppression, marginalization, and abuse in those systems. And what does that empire look like today? Well, it shows up in many places, both inside and outside of the church. It is white supremacy, it is the patriarchy, and the list could go on and on. We're going to be digging into a sermon series around repentance and repair throughout the season of Lent. And we'll be spending some time reflecting on the ways that our critique of these systems needs to lead us to both repentance and repair as part of this reimagining process. And as we mentioned earlier, this is not easy work. Just as it takes so much thoughtful reflection to challenge and reshape our ideas around what church means in regards to a building, it also takes so much intention, self-reflection, and commitment to the continual work of critiquing and reshaping these power structures within the church. So there's so many examples we could speak to, but we have limited time. And hopefully that series in Lent will be a good opportunity to dive into them. But the one that's been a challenge that we have faced as co-pastors over this last season has been the power structure of assumed male pastoral leadership in the church. And we want to believe we are over this one, that this is a thing of the past. And our guess is that most people in this room would not only be okay with non-male pastoral leadership, but would celebrate it. And yet, the waters that we swim in and have swimmed in still influence the subtle and not-so-subtle ways we make assumptions. This con there continues to be this gravitational pull back toward assumed and preferred male pastoral leadership within the church, and it shows up in the ways we might not even be aware of in ourselves. I was recently speaking with a male pastor friend of mine um, who I've met in different networking spaces, and we were talking about this very topic and about how our biases still show up, um, even mine, as a, a female in pastoral leadership, where my biases show up and, and default to this preferred male leadership. And he shared with me that he had realized that he had come to unconsciously equate preaching and teaching with a male voice, as that is what he had grown up with and what he still primarily heard in his circles. His theology would say, absolutely, women and other genders should be preaching. But there was something wired in his brain to assume, and by his own admission, even prefer to listen to a man's voice in those contexts. It was what he was familiar with. It was what his experience told him was right and good. So when I joined the team, uh, I did so as a member of our pastoral team, 
And once that team was down to just two of us, Mel and I, we moved into a co-leading and co-pastoring partnership and have operated in that way for the past 18 months. But we've had to fight a lot of assumptions along the way about our roles and who is actually leading. Some of those assumptions are outside the church. Like there's a default patriarchal assumption of who's been in charge. So churches would send elevation, you know, like a letter or like an invitation to an event. And it would always be addressed to me, not Mel, um, without ever on our website there being mention of like who's, who's leading. So there would be an assumption, oh, that guy, he must be in charge. Uh, there would be default assumptions maybe within our own community that one voice has been leading us. Default assumptions that we've just been playing co-leadership. This is, this is really nice to see, but one of you is probably actually making things happen. And we've, we've likened it to this idea of, of uh, holding back the tide. We've been working on this together and constantly, you know, we were having a conversation with a pastor in Guelph and uh, I think you set it up. And he made the assumption within a couple seconds that uh, I was the pastor and maybe you were like my secretary or something like that. And we were like, no, no. So we have to just name it over and over and over again, fighting back this, this tidal wave of assumption of who's actually leading this. Yeah, and we needed to be in it together. This is the important work of doing this as a community. Steve and I needed to be in that together, to holding back this tide together, to be committed to the hard work of living this out. We needed to listen well, be willing to see and address our blind spots, and to trust one another. This is where I'm going to get emotional, sorry. This is the hard and yet beautiful and redemptive work of reimagining church, of recentering and realigning around what we believe Jesus is for. And so we come back to our vision this vision of open hands, diverse voices, and reimagined church. And sometimes it is hard to believe that this vision is possible. Sometimes our vision gets blurry from tears from exhaustion or hurt, or strained from disappointment or despair. And if that is you, you are not alone. We have been there. And we offer these words of encouragement from Tim Sorens. If you are about to give up on the church, I beg you to consider that your frustration and confusion can become the fuel of a light that could shine all over the world. God might want to use this frustration in ways we simply cannot imagine in 10 years or 20 or 50. Much could be written about this exact moment. And your frustration with the church is a crucial part of the story. God is up to something. We are blessed to live in profoundly interesting and tumultuous times. Let's figure out how to go on this journey together. Let's have the courage to imagine what sort of church we will pass on to our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. So there will still be hard work ahead of us. Us as the big church, Big C Church, and you, Elevation, here. We have a hope, though, that this vision is possible. That, like Stephanie Speller says, that although this is a dream for us, it is reality for God that we can continue to experience the gradual healing we long for as we come back to Jesus again and again, and as we keep our eyes focused on what Jesus is 
for. So one of the things Mel and I have loved to collaborate on is like liturgies and litanies. And, and so we want to close with a, a reading of an ad- adaptation of our call to worship that we read earlier in the service. So it'll be on the screen, and I encourage you to read it along with us. Creator God, you are the one who formed us, calling us good and very good. And you are the one who calls us forth to be your people and your church. As we listen to your voice, your gentle, kind, compassionate voice, we are invited to follow you. Loving God, good shepherd, spirit within us and beyond us, we offer you the dreams of our hearts, the work of our open hands, the rhythms of our collective life together, and the vision we share as we reimagine who we are in light of who you are and what you are for. Lead us and inspire us, for yours is the kingdom, and we are yours. Amen. Amen.